0: You know, the reason I, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real-life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a
1: lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From
2: the bottom of our hearts, it's, it's just fantastic and awesome to, uh, to have the support
1: that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Oseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations world class whitetails. Oseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched. Pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations, Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, built for comfort, and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com, that's dot gear.com to start shopping. Osseo Gear, prepare to be invisible.
2: Well hey everybody, welcome to Chasing Giant's podcast brought to you by Osseo Camo uh don higgins it's february 6th we're at episode 103 and we've been running like crazy the last couple weeks
1: yeah i'll tell you terry i uh was in ohio earlier in the week um then came home for about a day and then had to go to wisconsin uh, for the seminar at uh, extreme custom food Pots yesterday and uh Went to church this morning, and now as soon as this podcast is over, I'm jumping back in the truck, and I'm headed to Nebraska and Iowa for some more consulting.
2: I got you. Well, uh, you, did a, you did a seminar yesterday at our, our good friend Scott Finendahl's place. I think you did two different sessions that were sold out. Um, I did one in West Virginia last week. the The common theme is that you and I aren't talking like normal hunting seminars when we go out and talk. So, I don't even know what your seminar was, but I heard a couple of people say it was something that they'd never never uh, heard before in a hunting seminar.
1: Well, I, I talked about the ultimate whitetail nutrition was the name of the uh, the presentation, but uh, I give them plenty to think about, put it that way. I'm going to uh, fine-tune that that seminar, actually, that um, PowerPoint presentation for that seminar. And I'm going to use it a lot more in the coming months. In fact, uh, uh, on my way to Wisconsin, I called uh, the promoter of the Illinois Deer Classic. And I asked him if I could change the topic of my seminar um, for the Illinois Deer Classic. I'm actually giving two different seminar topics, but I wanted this to be one of them because I'm, I'm hitting some things here that this is not a typical food plot seminar it goes way beyond that and and, uh, there's some real cutting-edge science that we talk about and uh i'm trying to show them i'm trying to educate people but at the same time i'm trying to show them what makes real world wildlife products different than the competition we've always
2: we've always come from the approach of education's number one and when we show them the facts if if people will just look at the science not the gimmicks we think we have a very good opportunity to win people's business but if we don't that's okay too we're still coming at it from an educational standpoint
1: yeah i mean uh, the more educated that the consumer is the better decisions they can make and uh, you know if we just show them how to do things like read a seed tag and just leave it at that um they'll figure it out on their own
2: right all right well i want to i want to spend quite a bit of time this episode uh giving the listeners or uh, audience some basic guidelines of frost seeding you know it's february 6th right now and we're getting a lot of frost seed questions so i want to take if it's all right with you i want to take maybe 10 minutes and let's just talk frost seeding a little bit because this is a very vital tool to a land manager's toolbox where where they can control weeds and get a jump start on products so for those for those of our listeners who don't know why do they call it frost seeding because you know sometimes there's snow on the ground sometimes there isn't
1: well the key to frost seeding is you want to do it while there's still some freezing temperatures and um, you're basically broadcasting seed onto a previously prepared seed bed and uh the freezing and thawing action actually works that seed into the ground a little bit and gets good seed to soil contact and uh, that's what allows the whole process to be successful
2: so um let's let's walk through the timing uh can you frost seed too early
1: well you can um and, and something that's really important is that not all seeds are gonna work with frost seeding. For right. example, get, if you'd go out there and try to frost seed soybeans, you're not gonna get anything.
2: Right. Now there's we'll only get into certain... the types of seeds here in a minute. I'm just looking more along the timing. So like February sixth, so people are gonna watch this tonight. Is it too early right now to go ahead and frost seed? Or are we in the window where it's a go if and we'll talk about what types of products in a minute.
1: Well, the general rule is that with the native grasses like switchgrass, the earlier you can frost seed in the winter, the better. I mean, you could do it back in December or even late November, okay. the right. earlier, the better. But when it comes to clovers, alfalfas, things like that, the later, the closer to spring, the better.
2: Okay. So uh, when we start talking about picking your, picking your right time to frost seed, Dwayne Hopkins and let's focus a little bit now on our legumes like clover, alfalfa, that type of thing. Uh, Dwayne always said that if you wait too late and you're walking across that that field and your boot sinks down in over halfway past your foot to where you're sinking, it's too late. Um, you might as well wait until spring when the soil's a little bit harder because we're basically putting that seed into mush and it goes down too deep, right?
1: Right. Um, yeah. If you're leaving tracks in the mud as you're doing it it's it's not a good thing you're too late you should have done it earlier right um
2: well let's let's talk a little bit about the types of products to frost seed from or with and um you know the frost seeding does some benefits that are different on native grass seed than really clover and alfalfa and those type products Um, let's talk specifically about uh, native grasses when we're frost seeding that um i you've talked numerous times on the podcast your favorite way of doing it is putting it in a uh, soybean stubble when the ground's frozen with a drill because that drill's riding over the frozen uh dirt and just dropping it in
1: mm. what
2: does the freezing and thawing do for native grasses that helps us out
1: well the some of the native grasses switchgrass particularly Needs to go through a stratification process to improve the germination rates, and uh, stratification means it's a it's a series of freezing and thawing. That switchgrass seed is a small, uh, hard, round seed with a, a kind of a shell around it, and the freezing and thawing and and having it out there in the the weather conditions actually. Cracks or softens that shell and allows more of it to germinate right out of the gate. Now, even if you did not do that, even if you did not go through any stratification process, there's still a certain percentage of that seed that's going to germinate anyway. But getting it out early by frost seeding, um, you're just going to improve the germination rates a little bit. And if you did not do that, there's a good chance that some of that seed would lay there for a year and germinate the following spring. But we want to get it all um, established as quick as we can, and that's why it's a good deal to, uh, you know, frost seed and get the best germination right out of the gate that we possibly can.
2: Yeah. So I just shared a picture of a a guy walking through uh, through a field, uh, broadcasting. Broadcasting is obviously a great way to to broadcast, or excuse me, a great method to frost seed. Uh, you use a drill with your switchgrass, but for clovers and alfalfas, this is a great tool the one thing that I think people misunderstand is is what you can frost seed into so um go into a little bit of an explanation about um do's and don'ts meaning your soil prep and what's there um I had a guy wanting to frost seed clover into pasture grass uh this this week and that's just simply not going to work
1: right you that that seed uh first of all it needs to make contact with the soil it can't get hung up in uh, uh, thatch or you know debris or something like that it needs to make contact with the soil Uh, the other thing is that seed when it's germinating uh, you know when it warms up in the spring and it does finally germinate it it doesn't need or it can't have competition from other plants so if you've got grasses or whatever that's already established well they're just going to choke out that seed that's trying to become established So you need to start with a good seed bed, and that's something that's most of the time it's been prepared the fall before. Uh, Soybean stubble is is a pretty good one. Uh, You can just go out there in the the soybean stubble and and frost seed that, and that works real well. But I probably should throw in here, Terry, that for the longest time, I promoted frost seeding as my favorite way to plant switchgrass. But I've kind of switched my, my opinion about that in just the last year, And here's why. When you frost seed that switchgrass, it's not going to germinate until the soil temperatures are about 60 or 65 degrees. Right. And a lot of weed seeds are going to germinate before that. So when the the switchgrass finally does germinate, there's usually a pretty good crop of weeds coming on. So for those, and, and frost seeding is a very good way of doing it. I just think that what I'm explaining here is a better way. And what I found that's better is that if you will wait until the soil temperatures are at that 60 degree level and then you go in and you spray that plot to kill those weeds that germinated ahead of time. And as soon as you spray, you can do it the same day, come right back and no till your switchgrass seed into that. And then the weeds that are there are dying. And at the same time, the seed, the switchgrass is immediately germinating it's not laying there. It's immediately germinating. Now, if you're going to do that to to, uh, get that seed through that stratification process, you can just take your bag of switchgrass seed and put it in your freezer and leave it there for a week, 10 days, two weeks, whatever, take it out for a week or so, then throw it back in for a week or so and just continue to do that in and out of the freezer until it's planting time. and, And that continual freezing and thawing process will stratify that seed and help with your germination rates.
2: So with that best that method, you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting the stratification process artificially with your freezer, um, but you're also taking care of your weed competition um, on the on the front end at the green up to where uh, you're giving it the best chance. Right. Now, what about what about clover seed? Let's say um, let's say a guy has a fall product like a harvest salad or deadly dozen. Mm-hmm. Um, that might. You might have plants in the food plot, but those are annuals that are going to die off. Even though they green up a little bit, that would be acceptable to go in and put clover on the backside of an annual fall plot because my weeds have already been taken care of. The only thing I have is the living plants there from the fall before, and whether we use a select herbicide or they just mature and and die off or we mow the tops of them, um, that would be a little bit different for your clover than it would be for your switchgrass
1: right um you know that clover seed is going to germinate a whole lot faster than the switchgrass would Uh, i mean as soon as it warms up in the spring that clover seed is going to germinate and and those the way you take care of those annual plants that you had in your previous plot is with the mower if you put a good um uh, seeding of clover seed down and then just start mowing that plot you're going to end up with a great stand of clover.
2: And when we have an existing clover plot, frost seeding existing clover is vital because by the end of winter, you have all these voided areas where it's just dirt. And we want that to fill back in with clover before a weed would have an opportunity. That, that weed seed is there. We just don't want it to get and get larger and, and choke out what the clover is is, is already there.
1: Right. You can keep a, a stand of clover going indefinitely by just continually frost seeding. And, you know, the our recommendation is that uh, every other spring real or, or yeah, real early in the spring, um, you frost seed uh, some more seed into your clover stand at about half the rate as you would a new planting. So on a new planting, we recommend about 10 pounds to the acre. So if every other spring you would go in with five pounds per acre. And just broadcast that seed, frost seed it. Um, you can keep that clover stand going pretty much indefinitely. Yeah. Um, people, we we
2: see it with the listener submitted questions that come into the podcast. People take us very literally. You know, we had we had one person question us when we said burning, it's good and it's bad. Well, it's two different it's two different applications. So mm. I hope that the listeners understand just this little bit of dialogue about frost seeding. The bottom line is uh, get your product right now, whether it's real world or somebody else's. It doesn't matter because you need to either be doing that artificial stratification of your switchgrass in your freezer right now or getting it in the field. And then a little bit later this month for most of the country, we're going to be frost seeding our legumes like the clovers and alfalfas and stuff. So uh, I wanted this. is This is the prime time to uh, to really talk about that.
1: Yeah, we, I've been getting questions almost daily, in fact, at, at the Extreme Custom Food Plot seminar that I did yesterday uh, and talking with people. I, I bet I had three or four different people ask me about frost seeding. So uh, we're getting a lot of those questions this time of the year, and hopefully this will help uh, the listeners.
2: So if you got more questions, just reach out to the Real World uh, site. Uh, Don and I's social media and email is pretty full. If you want a quick answer about food plot stuff, we have a team of people that monitor that, uh, those emails and, and in, um, uh, private messages on social media, your best way to get an answer fast. And it's going to be the same answer that Don or myself would give you is to work through the real world side. So I hope that helps everybody. I'm going to, uh, share another screen and change topics real quick. And that, um, uh, just click the wrong button. Here we go. Uh, you announced this on our podcast last week and, um. You shared it this week. Uh, bikes from Quiet Cat are now back in stock, and uh, you have a new coupon to use to get a free trailer with any bike purchase.
1: Yeah, for all the uh, listeners of Chasing Giants and the consulting clients, uh, masterclass students, um, if you're interested in purchasing a new Quiet Cat bike, um, you can get uh, one of these trailers, like Terry showing the picture of here, for free uh just by entering the coupon code higgins, h i g g i n s, and uh, you know that's like we said before, Terry, those quiet cat bikes have been real game changers, and um, look what I got. oh, and you got you got one of those uh, baskets this, or racks or the, whatever.
2: Yeah, this is the um, for the people listening right now, this is the basket that I saw at ATA. uh they shipped Don and I one of these, uh, and this is gonna be Don's shed hunting container when he picks up about 46 sheds running across his property this spring so
1: <laughs> well i can't wait to get it looks like so, it's pretty simple how it attaches to the uh, rack on the back of the uh, right yeah, behind so, the seat
2: So they told me that these mounting holes depending on the generation of bike that you have might be a different bolt pattern than like you you have uh i think you have an, a 2019 or 2018 bike i have a 2020 these bolt hole patterns might not line up. So I'm going to have the fab shop, just get me a little pieces of metal strapping that we can make an adapter if we need to, when I come up, but yeah, I mean, yeah. it's pretty simple. I think that's going to be awesome. to Just throw your backpack in or sheds or trail camera bag or whatever we use, you know, the, the bike's been a vital part of our, our, uh, process and in keeping intrusion down. So I can't imagine, uh, that being uh something we won't take advantage of i uh i thought this was funny i went ahead and bought this i don't know i didn't even take it out of the bag i guess i should have that came in with it this is also known as the fat boy seat yeah i don't don't know what it's called on uh on quiet cats website they'll probably be mad at me for not knowing the exact name of it but when you're going across those bumpy uh frozen ground like i have been the last couple weeks I got me a a big boy seat for, so I don't end up with a small, uh, seat
1: going up my rear end. So did they send two of those? (laughs) Do you want me to get you one? No, I'm just curious. They probably seen me and think that I'm not a fat boy, so I don't need one.
2: I'll make sure, I'll make sure you get one of them. So, uh, but thanks to the folks at quiet cat for giving us that coupon, um, and, uh, helping share that and save some money for all of our listeners um i'm gonna switch gears here real quick um you you alluded to it um uh, bear with me here we go we alluded to it a minute ago with the illinois deer classic um this is uh the speaking engagements you and i in two weeks will be up in Shipshawana, less than two weeks then you got the dixie deer classic and then uh the illinois deer classic now this new seminar that you're uh that you're going to be providing uh on deer nutrition are you going to be giving that maybe on i know we're doing the podcast in ship on thursday night the debate is friday night what are you doing on saturday are you giving this seminar
1: i guess so yeah i'm so. going to give that seminar at every one of these events um the uh, the illinois deer classic they wanted two different seminar topics so I'll be doing the ultimate food plot uh, or the ultimate whitetail nutrition seminar that I just spoke about, but I'm also going to do one on the rise and fall of the Illinois deer herd, Um, kind of give some of the history and where things went wrong and what it would take to turn around the deer herd. So uh, Illinois deer hunters, you might be interested in that.
2: Well, that would be specific for probably the Illinois audience. I'm not sure that many people in North Carolina would be interested. Right, yeah. For the Illinois folks, that would be a, a game changer uh, uh, opportunity to hear facts that isn't politically biased, not to get you on a rant about Nancy Pelosi like I did last week. But um, <laughs> if you if you want to get tickets to that, uh, the great debate on Friday night in Shipshawana, you need to do it now. I, I heard that there's going to be over 2000 people there
1: i'm not surprised everywhere i go they're asking me about it uh you know i was in ohio last week consulting and just about every stop i was asked about this and some of those people are actually coming um i heard there's buses coming from ohio missouri and iowa to the event so
2: well um the pressure's on yeah the good part about that that show too is is it gives us a chance to talk to a lot of people Because you and I are basically in a booth for three days, except for the hour segments each day that we're out doing the seminar or the podcast or this debate. So it'll be nice to get to visit with everybody and uh, and say hello. Uh, Tony's been promoting it on his platforms, too. So uh, he's just a class act. And I think that at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot learned from uh, people to hear two different perspectives on a lot of whitetail management stuff. So.
1: Yeah, I, I expect it to be a friendly debate. There's going to be things that Tony and I agree on. There's going to be some <laughs> we disagree on, but at the end of the debate, I, I certainly expect that we'll shake hands and still be friends.
2: Yeah. Um, I talked with Chris Yates today. Last week, we made a um, an announcement with Chris and Brian Kraft from Midwest Land Group. Uh, we were talking with uh, Chris t- uh, this week to try to navigate you know, some of the details about the uh, truck giveaway. We're working on that. Well, we, we don't have a start and end date yet. We hope we will very soon, but it is a go um, But the the one thing that Chris wanted me to remind everybody of is If you've been debating whether to do this or not the lead times on the trucks are getting much shorter now I know Don and I have our trucks on order. Uh, we'll probably be getting them I'm guessing the end of this month or the beginning of March so, uh, if you're interested in uh, a vehicle, everybody always asks us. I bet I get six or seven messages a week wanting Chris Yates's number. So, I'm going to share for those people listening uh, Chris and Colby's number. It's 816 351 9957, is Chris Yates, or call Colby at 816 261. Two seven seven seven. Uh Victory Chevrolet actually has three locations. But keep in mind, folks, that not only if you're looking for a new diesel truck, but also a used one, I would call Chris before you do anything because he's been doing this deal in this diesel trucks for what he tell us since 2012. For a while. So uh you know, he's got a steady stream of trucks like Don and mine that are coming back in on trade. He knows what's coming in so if you're looking for a low mileage used truck or a new truck uh, give chris a call we appreciate victory chevrolet helping us out on the podcast
1: yeah definitely great folks and we're proud to be sponsored by victory chevrolet
2: all right so uh i got i got some kind of cool news you don't you don't know much of this we've been running so busy this week that um the The announcement and having Chris and Brian, I think, has inspired a lot of people. We've received a lot of calls this week of people wanting to chip in and help with this raffle. Some people are, uh, uh, they might have a business that has a product they want to donate. Some people just understand that what this raffle does is it takes a little bit of money or a little bit of product and blows it up into something a whole lot bigger that we can help families with. Um, you know, it's like the 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 story in the Bible where Jesus took five loaves of bread and fed five thousand. You know, it starts with something small, and when we put God in front of it and use it, it gets a whole lot bigger. So this is the stuff that we got calls on this week. I'm sharing a screen, and for the people that are listening, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this stuff off. Now, this is the stuff that's verbally been uh, t- discussed this week, but this is the type of stuff people are trying to kick in we got a uh, custom builder that wants to donate a building material kit for a 30 by 40 i don't quote me on those measurements i think that's right a post frame building so like the wood the trusses the metal the windows and doors he's gonna donate a building kit to the raffle uh, a private donor has called us and said, I'm going to buy a quiet cat bike and put in the raffle. So quiet cat's going to help us out with some special pricing on that for that. Matthews is putting a bow in it. Um, a company in Kansas, Kansas or Iowa, I can't remember. Uh, they're putting in a a new trailer, Osseo, Exodus, Wiseye. Um, somebody's donating a brand new pellet smoker, uh, weed eaters, um, vortex is putting in binoculars, uh, bow strings and cables. I mean, and, and one guy just called and said, Hey, I know that with this, this raffle, he even saw what we were trying to do with the truck being part of this raffle. We're going to appeal to a lot of people outside of the hunting industry. You know, when it's just bows and blinds and camos, we have a small demographic, but now that we have the truck, so he he's buying and shipped in two milwaukee fuel m18 backpack sprayers just because he knows that even non-hunters would want something like that so um i just i'm I'm humbled that this many people want to reach out but my my words to everybody is if you want to be involved in this thing you got to get us get us information soon because all of this documentation has to be put on our gaming permit uh, to legally host the raffle. So we're working hard on that. But if anybody listening wants to participate, you got to call me this week. So um, Don's going to be on the road. Send me a message on social media. Don's just going to forward you to me because he's going to be with consultants all week. If if you're led to be part of this thing um, beyond just buying tickets when we go open, uh, we got to know now
1: yeah and i should probably throw out there terry that uh that list you showed is just a partial list that's just some of the new items those we are already had a pretty good week. list Well, right. this, those that's, are
2: the calls this week since we had chris and brian on last week so, right. that, so that's there's a whole awesome.
1: big the list is a whole lot longer than what you just listed off
2: yeah so those are literally um we we announced that on last week's podcast and the calls started coming in so I appreciate it. I I appreciate the example that Chris and Brian gave us, you know, and, and and their donation is big. Um, and, but not everybody has to do something big. So, but, but our, our time crunch is, uh, because of the value of the raffle, we have to document things on, on paperwork. So if you want to be part of this, uh, reach out to me this week. So, um, i'm ready unless you have something else to talk about to uh, move to the lester's feet family of the week that is brought to you brought to us by matthews Um, this is a story of a, a kid named braylon who had cancer in his right leg on his femur and he just rang the bell leaving his final pet scan that he's cancer free now he's rehabbing so pretty cool story we'll move on to it right now
3: Melissa Braylon's mom.
1: I'm Mike Braylon's dad.
3: I'm Mandy Braylon's sister. And I'm Braylon Johnson. I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma of the right femur. Braylon was diagnosed in May of 2021 one day before his 14th birthday. Um, It was a very hard diagnosis to receive um, for anyone let alone our a 14-year-old son. Um, We chose Cincinnati Children's. um, After doing some major researching, we found an amazing oncologist that specializes in sarcoma, and he has been wonderful through this whole journey. Um, With it being three hours away, it was very difficult, um, financial hardship on us, being away from work, being away from family in general, Um, knowing that we have our two older kids, one away at at college. is Nathan, our oldest, so we had just, a lot had happened last summer. When we were reached out by, when Lester the Foundation reached out to us, it was a huge relief. Um, I was able to focus on Braylon's health and stay with him at the hospital as much as possible without cramming in work hours on top of the chemo while my husband still worked, and but it also allowed him to take time off um, more freely and be with us as well when we needed it most. In August, he had a 13-hour surgery to have his, the mass of the right femur removed. Um, they also had to put in some hardware, remove his left fib, and put it over to help rebuild the area. Braylon has come a long way. Um, He's in a lot of physical therapies, actually just um,
0: went into remission. He had a-
3: I had my final PET scan just the other day and I'm cancer free. Thank you for all of the love and the the support, the prayers um, guiding us through this. At any time, we receive multiple messages throughout this journey. From your foundation offering, dinner, Uh, just notifying us hey we're in the area if you need anything at all that being away from family was a huge comfort knowing that if we needed someone you guys were just minutes away and to come from complete strangers it meant a lot so we want to thank you um, and I hope you guys know how amazing you are for families thank you for being amazing thank you for taking the burden off of me and making it easier for us to be supportive as a family for each other. Um, From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Yes, thank thank you. you very much.
0: This first varsity
2: event. Congratulations! All right, that's a pretty cool story about a young man that's uh, been fighting cancer. Um, It's it's nice to. it's a little uncomfortable for these families to get on video and, and talk about what they talk about. But I think it's so cool that, that it gives everybody watching an update about where this money that we're donating and uh, distributing goes to.
1: Yeah, it's nice to hear uh, success stories, if you will. Uh, this young man and now he's cancer free and, you know, God is good. And it's it's always awesome to, to see someone who struggled like that to come out on top. Well, he's a young deer
2: hunter, so uh, I hope that he's uh, he gets his rehab done to where he can walk and get up in a blind this year and uh, get a crack at a big buck. He should, uh, within the next day or two, be opening up a box that has a new Chasing Giants hat and T-shirt in it that I sent him up. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks he'll be opening that up yep. as just a small gift from you and I. So with that, why don't we move on to the first uh, listener-submitted question um and i'm going to share the screen right now for don to read this off
1: all right our first question comes from mike soyster from martinsburg pennsylvania mike says hi don and terry love the new video podcast i plan to start placing some mock scrapes in the next week or so do you have any tips for selecting site locations for these i hunt public land big timber with blocks of cover old clear cuts, and dense mountain laurel thickets. Thanks for all you do for the hunting community and Lester's feet. Well, Mike, as far as locations for these rope scrapes, the you just need to look for places where you would expect that a buck would make a scrape anyway. Um, field edges are great, you know, logging roads, um, clearings where, where you've got the overhanging branch already. Um, you're not going to get a deer to do something unnatural. So, it it just needs to be a place where he would naturally want to scrape anyway. Uh, But you're kind of doing it in a a location that is to your advantage. That's the whole purpose. Rather than just let them go scrape where they want, you want to put that scrape in a location that you can take advantage of either through trail cameras, Uh, maybe it's a spot that'll have easy access for you to check your trail cameras, or maybe you're going to hunt over that scrape and you know you're you're setting up your stand downwind and everything and and you're laying it out. But uh, you know the two words of advice: one, get them out right now. Don't wait. That um, those ropes need to weather all summer long. You'll have much better success. And uh, the other thing is, don't go overboard with them. Don't go out and put out a, a hundred of them on a property. Um, you, you don't need that many. I mean, if a if a buck's got a rope hanging from every other branch in the woods, he's not going to pay much attention to it. But if there's only one or two on a property, then he's a whole lot more likely to hit them. So uh, th- that's my best advice on locations for these scrapes.
2: Yeah, I think about your property and where you use them. I think you're you you have a couple scenarios that you use rope scrapes. Obviously, one of them is for inventory. And I think when we when we set up a a camera and a rope scrape for inventory, I think people people miss the. The idea of inventory. I don't care that that's a night picture or a daytime picture. I just want to know if that buck's there or not. Right. Uh, maybe maybe the direction he's coming from. If you're in big ag, you know, um, uh, might might allude you to where the bedding is. If you're in thick, you know, uh, big wooded country, it, it's a little bit different. But you know, your inventory spot access is going to be your key to get to and from your stand. Your your other two situations on your farm where you have them. I think about is the smoky blind, uh, just genius what you did there this year. And if nothing else, it's to give you a little bit of time to prepare before they come through a gap in the fence, um, you know, to get into the food plot. Because what would end up happening is we wouldn't see them come through until they hit and cleared the pine tree. And then it's getting your bow ready and getting ready to shoot fast. And especially when you have a guest that's hunting, Getting them ready, calm down—that type of thing is tough. So, a rope scrape that you can see just through a little window back in the woods that they stage up on a little bit and rub, lets us give us a little bit of more time. Right. Uh, the the other one's actually on the south end where where we have where you have the uh, big ladder stand that I hunted in that the mice kept running up and down the tree on me this year. Uh, you know, there's a rope scrape there that just is almost as a distraction so we can get ready and shoot there, not not as much about inventory. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think, but before you, you start worrying about hanging one on a branch somewhere, be, be strategic in it. You know, that, that scrape scrape needs to tell you what bucks are there or provide a location that a buck's going to be for a shot. So there, there has to be a strategy, not just random
1: and i think that's what a lot of deer hunters miss not just with rope scrapes but especially with some of these habitat improvement projects is there there needs to be a strategy behind why you're doing it at that specific location and if there's not a good strategy and a good reason then you're probably putting human intrusion on a property that's unnecessary and not really going to help you be successful I think the guys that don't have a strategy
2: behind it are probably the ones that are worried about taking a 50 yard shot in the woods. That's you know, very
1: if, possible. if there's
2: yeah. a, if there's a strategy behind where you put your stand, where you put your rope scrapes, uh, where you might drop a tree, uh, where you might put up a, a cattle panel or a section of fence in the woods, you're going to be able to get those bucks within that, you know, magic 20, 25 yard range to have a close chip shot. And I think that's that's where a lot of hunters, I think, are are missing the boat, not only with intrusion, but strategically lay your, your stuff out to where it comes to an advantage for you. Otherwise, these four-year-old or older bucks are going to be tough.
1: Yep, I agree. Well said, Terry.
2: All right. With that, why don't we move on to our com property of the week. everybody. This is Terry Peer from the Chasing Giants podcast. I have Mark Kennedy, managing broker from buyafarm.com. Mark, how are you doing tonight?
0: I'm doing fine, Terry. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, this is your first time on the podcast. What kind of property do you have to talk about today?
0: Uh, Tonight, I'd like to talk to the folks about 487 acres in Alexander County, Illinois. It's, uh, listed on our website as, uh, listing two, one, three, nine L. Uh, it is near Tams, Illinois, and it's all wooded except for some food plots and one small piece of ground that I think somebody had in row crop, just a few acres, but, okay. uh, it's, uh. Heavily timbered, a lot of topography, a lot of deer, a lot of turkey. It's it's uh, it's kind of wild in places, <laughs> to be honest with you. But it's easy to get to. Uh, it's just off of Route 127, um, a uh, state highway, and there are accesses. Uh, like I said, you're less than two miles off of 127. There are two county roads, one on the east side of the property, and a gated entrance on the west side of the property. Well, that's uh,
2: really important for people looking at this from for a hunting property. You know, a lot sure. of a lot of these properties that are heavily wooded, uh, you only have access on one side of the property, and without big ag fields, um, you know, inside the property boundaries, it kind of traps you. So having access from multiple sides of it is a huge deal for a hunter.
0: Yeah, and you don't have that many neighbors on this property. There's more, I think, two and a quarter miles uh, of the perimeter of this is up against uh, the U.S. Forest Service.
2: Well, that's a big deal right
0: there. Well, and a lot of people say, well, I don't want government land next to me. But uh, that government land hard to access. Mm-hmm. So there's very little hunting, uh, on that government ground.
2: Well, heavily wooded. Um, this is a property that a, uh, hunter or land manager could pretty much start with a clean slate and do what he wanted. Um, I do like the, I do like the topography. It's not just a, you know, a, uh, cutting board flat surface. So not only do you have woods and timber, but you have, uh, some, uh, um, hills and valleys to actually, uh to work with. So it looks like a very interesting property. Um what I'm assuming this property the taxes are pretty low on it also, aren't they?
0: Oh, I think they're under $500. Okay. Yeah, for last year's tax bill was $460.
2: Okay. Well, we want everyone to go to the biofarm.com uh website and search under Alexander County. And uh, as you mentioned, this is a 487-acre tract. Do you got anything else you want to explain about this one?
0: Uh, For somebody, a lot of people think that because it's so big and and so wild that it's pretty far from everything. And and I think you're only 30 miles from Cape Girardeau, Missouri and 30 miles from Paducah, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, So if you need uh, a larger city, uh, to be close to it, you're not very far uh, from anything you'd need.
2: All right. That's a great point. All right. Well, Mark, uh, how do people get in touch with you if they're interested in this property or maybe some other services that you can offer through BioFarm?
0: Well, many things. Yeah, I, I'm in the vehicle a lot. So it's my first choice would be by telephone, which is 618 uh, 924 1747. Uh, the to get me, uh, my email, which sometimes I'm a little slower on that, I can't <laughs> do that drive very easy, is uh, mark kennedy, all lowercase, at biofarm.com. All
2: right, well, super. Well, we want to thank you and the other owners of BioFarm for their support of the podcast. We ask that our uh, listeners go visit their website, or social media to learn more about the services and properties that buyafarm.com can offer you. Thanks for being on the show tonight, uh, Mark. We uh, look forward to having you again.
0: Okay. Thanks, Terry. Look forward to it myself. Thank you. Okay. Well, we want to thank
2: Buy a Farm for their support of the podcast. I actually like hearing from the agent. I know it's, uh, it's a little bit more work and time to schedule it all, but Uh, They can talk about these properties better than we can. They're the ones actually out walking them, especially this one in southern
1: Illinois. Yeah, I think that's been a real positive change for this podcast is getting those guys on to, uh, you know, promote their own properties. Nobody can do it better than they can. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to listener submitted question number two. Okay, this question comes from Tristan Reed from McBain, Michigan. Uh Tristan says, This is Tristan Reed from McBain, Michigan. I've been watching a lot of videos and listening to a bunch of podcasts on screening and switchgrass. My question is some guys plant big fields and some guys say it's all about the perimeter of the switchgrass. So they plant multiple areas in the same field and leave open pockets with browse and smaller shrub trees. What would you recommend? I recently watched your Smokey and Mel videos and noticed you had a big field and they both loved it. I also was wondering if you had an eight acre field, would you plant it all to soybeans or half beans and half switchgrass? Most fields in the area are corn or alfalfa. I have many more questions, but we'll start with this one. Thank you for developing your products and producing a great podcast. Uh, well, Tristan, uh, when it comes to the switchgrass, I am a fan of bigger fields. Um, I tell, uh, recommend all the time to clients and customers that uh, if you can't plant at least five acres, then I would not plant it. Because as a buck is bedding in a field of switchgrass, the edge of that field represents danger to him. He's very unlikely to encounter danger while in that field. Well, bet he's. People are not going to be walking through that field, bumping him up. Um, it's going to be pretty rare that a coyote comes through and, and rouse him out of his bed. But these different forms of danger are going to be found around the edge of, of that switchgrass field. So uh, he wants to bed. I mean, if you have a field of it, they never bed right on the edge. They, they want to get away from that edge. And if you've got a small field, he could bed in the very center and still be not that far from the edge, which represents the danger. Um, without a doubt, I mean, this is just a perfect example of how a lot of people try to overcomplicate land management and deer hunting, especially for big bucks. Uh, they come up with an idea, then they come up with some reasons to support that idea, but they never have the first hand experience. Uh, they never have the success stories to back up their opinion. You just mentioned my Bucks, Smokey, and Mel, which were video, videotaped in big fields of switchgrass. Um, when I offer advice, it's based on an idea that I had, but an idea that I've proven, ac- I've proven accurate over time, a- as you mentioned. So um, when it comes to switchgrass or, or these bedding grass fields, bigger is better I'm not a fan at all of breaking them up with trees and shrubs and such. That just makes it way more difficult to burn the field. Um, I I do like to use some miscanthus within a switchgrass field to create some structure, but other than that, make it big, um, stick with straight switchgrass with maybe some miscanthus structure and, and then stay out of it. And if you've got you're, you're very likely to have bucks in your area bed there.
2: You know, native grasses in Miscanthus is a pretty expensive investment. Now, it comes back every year and lasts a long time. So, you know, it's not that it doesn't pay for itself, but this is a product that somebody can overcomplicate really easy and really ruin the results that, that they can. So I think uh, I think a lot of it's going to just depend on the layout of somebody's property, what their goals are, where they're trying to do. There's not one answer for everybody. But I think uh, overall, bigger is better and leave the food outside of the switchgrass. You don't want that buck being able to stand up in his bed and eat there. You want him to travel somewhere else and then you need to be between those two points. So I think I think keeping it simpler is better with this product, especially because of how expensive it is. You can't, it takes three years to mature and get uh, to where it's, it's uh, fully grown and it's really expensive. It's not something you can just, experiment with and then try something different next year
1: yeah you make a very good point about the food terry i know a lot of these habitat guys suggest putting clover in with your switchgrass or some forbs or this and that so the deer have bedding cover and food well i I totally disagree with that If if a deer is bedded on my property i want the bedding cover totally separate from the feeding area if a buck gets hungry and he wants to eat, I don't want him just standing up in his bed and dropping his head and start eating immediately. I want him to have to walk to that food source. And when he does that, he's covering ground. That makes him vulnerable to hunting pressure. That that allows you to kill him. And besides setting up a property to grow big deer, you, you also got to keep in mind that you're setting that property up to kill those deer once they're there. Yep. Great point. All right, well, are we are ready to move on to question number three? Ready for the next one.
2: All right, let me share it on the screen here for you.
1: Okay, the next question comes from Jackson Hurdle from Northwood, Iowa. Uh, Jackson says, Don and Terry, love the podcast and listen to it every week. Quick question. The more I hear you guys talk about soil bed prep for switchgrass and getting it planted, What if you purchase some already and don't have the soil prep up to snuff coming into the spring? Here in Northern Iowa, getting prepped before snow and with minimal lack of human intrusion during hunting season without planting beans last year, is there any way to speed the process? I know probably not going to get the best results, but a way to plant yet this spring. Uh, Wait some time and use fire or use any other tool to knock weeds back. Thanks, let's go Brandon. Well, Jackson, first of all, any time that you're gonna plant these warm season native grasses, uh, be it switchgrass or, or any of the other species, site prep is everything, there, there is no shortcuts. If you take a shortcut, you, you're gonna be, your project is gonna be a failure. And it starts with the planting site. You, you just cannot skip steps. And, and that means you've got to totally eliminate vegetation that's there and, and not with fire. Fire is not going to kill anything. All it's going to do is it's going to burn up the dead vegetation that's there. And it's really going to stimulate, um, the grasses or whatever that's already growing. Um, now fire is a good way to get rid of all that debris, that thatch and whatever to to as a first step in creating a good planting site but then you need to let that site green back up and, and when it greens up you need to spray it with a herbicide to kill it and I'm gonna tell you a, res- a herbicide recipe to get the very best results you want to start with glyphosate or Roundup you also want to add clethodim clethodim is a grass herbicide a- and you want to add that to the mix And then you want to add a surfactant. Or surfactant is just a chemical that uh, it it basically helps that herbicide stick to the leaf of the plant and be more effective. So you want to use Roundup or glyphosate at the highest recommended label rate. Um, Then you want to use clethodem at the highest rate on the label. And then you want to add your surfactant and, and spray that field and give it about six weeks or more at minimum of six weeks uh, for that to work and and then let it green up again after six weeks you're going to start getting some more little weeds and maybe some more little grasses come on then go back in spray it a second time with that same herbicide mix and immediately right after you spray it you can do it the same day immediately go in and no till your switchgrass seed in and if you do that you'll get a really good stand make sure you don't drill it in too deep A quarter inch is deep. Eighth inch is ideal. Anything more than a quarter is too deep. So uh, if you follow those directions, you'll have a good stand, but there is no shortcut. And also, you mentioned that you've already bought the seed and you're afraid you need to get it in this year. No, you don't. You can throw that seed in your freezer for an entire year, come back next year and pull it out, and it's going to lose very, very, very little germination. You're still going to be able to use it a year from now. It is way more important for you to get your site prep down first, and then use that seed, than it is to use that seed and take some shortcuts just to get it used up.
2: Right, and I think uh, I'm going to ask you to. I already know the answer, and I'll tee you up a little bit. But um, the reason for waiting for between when you spray is we want that surfactant's going to hold that chemical on the on the plant longer. We want that to kill the, all the way down to the root, you know, it's like, it's like food plotters that'll go in and spray something and then they'll work ground three days or two days afterwards. Well, that, that chemical hasn't killed the root all the way down. Then they go in and they just chop up live roots and distribute them and then wonder why they have problems with weed control. So you need to really let that herbicide do its job before we do anything.
1: Right. And and in a second spraying is you know, you're gonna once you've exposed that ground, once you've killed everything on it and made that ground bare and the sunlight hits it, there's gonna be a second crop of weeds come on. Right. And that's what the second spring is about. You wipe out that next crop of weeds and then immediately drill in your switchgrass and you'll get a lot better results. All right. Great question. Uh we're gonna move on to question
2: number four.
1: All right. The last question comes from Mark Phillips from Norris City, Illinois mark says don and terry thanks guys for all the hard work you put in to this podcast every week to make it what it is i look forward to it every week my question is don i know you talk about human intrusion a lot how do you go about checking your trail cameras without causing human intrusion i run a lot of trail cameras and i'm always concerned about when to check them and how often well mark a lot of my trail cameras are are not in the cover, so to speak, a lot of them are out on the edge where they're easy to get to. Um, if I do have some like in the heart of a, uh, a property, those do not get checked during the season. I'll, I'll put them out right before season starts, uh, get them there in the cover with a fresh set of batteries and I'll come back after season and retrieve those to see what was running that property during the season. Um, I would say it's it's a very small percentage of my cameras that uh, I utilize this way, maybe one on each property. Most of my cameras are out on the edges, the field edges, whatever. I, I don't care that I get pictures after dark. All I want to know is that a buck is there. And uh, that's pretty much uh, my recipe for how I operate to my cameras on a property.
2: Yeah, I think – um, um... Guys use, and, and I think a lot of that is how you use cell ca- or camera data. You're you're creating a yearly pattern and building a story. Uh, we talked about those habitat projects. Everything's done with a strategy. So, if if you have a buck there, you know uh, where he's going to be and how you can hunt him with that wind. Versus, I think a lot of people are really chasing that data. They put a lot of cameras out in a lot of different places, wanting to know where to hunt. Uh, your MO is a little bit different. You're trying to find the bucks with the trail camera and then you already know where you're going to hunt based on the wind.
1: Absolutely. I I don't need a camera to give me a stand location. I can figure out the stand locations on a property where I need to hunt. What I use the cameras for is to tell me what bucks are there and also when in their annual pattern, what time of the year are they there? And I know that from, from past experience, you know, if a buck doesn't show up till mid-October, I don't need to be there the first October. Um,
2: well, one of the other things he talks about keeping intrusion down. Uh, talk a little bit about how you use the wind when you're checking trail cameras, just like when you're
1: hunting. Right. I I don't want the the scent my scent blowing into the sanctuary. If I'm uh, you know out on the outer edge of a property checking a camera, uh, I don't want my scent blowing in there where I expect the buck to be bedded. Although that very well may not even bump him out of his bed, he may just lay tight and and let me pass. I, I just don't want to take any chances. I really like checking cameras on on very at least in during season, I really like checking them on really windy days because you can get away with a bunch. You can, you know, ride that quiet cat bike in right along the woods edge and they don't even hear you or, or see you because the branches are blowing and making all kinds of noise. So uh timing, specific timing to check those cameras also comes into play. I know there's guys that like to, to get out and hang stands in the rain, for example, or check cameras in the rain. I'm not convinced after talking to Ron Slifer in, his, in regards to his bloodhound Dio, I'm not, not convinced that's solid advice anymore. Um, but, but windy days and riding that quiet cat in to keep your ground sent down, uh, is a great strategy.
2: Or just minimize the amount of times that you go in. You know, if, if, if there's nothing wrong if you have a, a rut stand uh, that you put a camera up on. Checking that camera when you go in and hunt that stand, but don't make extra trips in just to check the trail camera. Um, I have a couple places here in Kentucky where the, the trail camera is actually up in the tree stand pointing down at something to where uh-huh. it's the same in and out. But I'm not going to make an extra trip in there just to check a trail camera.
1: Right. And, you know, as I sit here, we sit here in early February, I've got cameras out right now that I have not visited since October. Right. And I don't know how many months, was that, four or five months. Um, If you're using good, dependable trail cameras, you ought to be able to leave them out for months at a time and know that they're going to be working when you go back. Right.
2: And in the cell camera, you know, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. That's another way to keep intrusion down as long as you have a good camera in the right place that it actually works. That's that's pretty much our biggest concern right now is what are you missing versus what are you getting?
1: One thing I want to throw out in regards to trail cameras, Terry, is uh, yesterday when I was at uh, Scott Fenandall's giving that seminar, there was a representative there from uh, Cuddyback scott sells a lot of cutting back cameras and their system and uh, the that representative got up in front of the crowd and and basically told us that the uh, supply chain issue is going to hit the trail camera industry this year and he strongly encouraged the crowd that if you're going to be buying new trail cameras this year you need to buy them immediately and i think it goes back to china you know we also had a rep there talking, uh, a chemical rep, talking about the chemicals. Well, the big issue with glyphosate and, and the reason it, it's increased in price three times what it was last year is because it's made in China, as are a lot of these trail cameras. Um, if you're planning on adding to your trail camera arsenal as a listener of Chasing Giants, no matter what brand you buy, doesn't you better be getting on top of it unless you're using... Reconyx, Reconyx are American made. I think they're the only American made one. May, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, these others, uh, at least the components, are coming from China. Uh, if you're gonna buy some, you better get on top of it. Just, uh, just a word of advice to our listeners.
2: Well, I think, uh, I think we've all seen what inflation's done. You know, I heard a joke the other day that this inflation has got food so expensive, the five second rule is now a ten second rule. If you drop <laughs> something on the floor, I heard that. Uh, in- inflation's going to affect everything, so um, I think if you're wanting to buy something, uh, you better get on it. Especially as it relates to electronics or stuff that's sourced overseas. Uh, doesn't matter what it is. Um, I think it's probably a good idea to be prepared. Um, it's it's going to be interesting the next the next uh, the next year or two how how this whole thing shakes out. But um, it's like we had this huge ice storm in Kentucky the other day uh thursday night it hit and you know everybody's worried about losing power and everything and i'm just laughing because i've been ready for an emp for
1: years so yeah. a,
2: little, a little power outage isn't gonna help me
1: <laughs> nope going will take more than that to stop you isn't it
2: yep yeah, so well um this is uh we'll wrap up episode 103 next week is super bowl sunday uh Don and I will be producing a podcast on Super Bowl Sunday. That's where our priorities are.
0: Yeah. And
2: have it having it, it ready to release. Um and then the following week we'll be in Shipshawana, Indiana. We hope that everybody comes out and says hello. I'm not sure how we're going to capture whether it's just going to be audio that week or we'll have a video feed or not. Uh we need to work on that with the folks that are putting on that event. So um I just couldn't help but think we talked a lot in this episode about site prep and frost seeding and, and being ahead of everything. You know, uh, you know, your seed bed's got to be ready before you plant or your frost seeding is so that when soil temps get up, it's the first to germinate. Uh, as we sign off, everybody, I think I think that's a lesson for us also in our spiritual life. We can't wait till the green up or the, the temperature, the ground gets up to start addressing things in our life, whether that's the relationship with God, or maybe even the relationship with your, uh, with your family members or friends, it, it's sometimes going to backfire on you when you try to do the right thing, but try to get ahead of it. It's, uh, it's not just for planting food plots.
1: Right. You can't wait till you're laying there on your deathbed and, and make things right. Sometimes, uh, some people don't get that chance, you know, their life is snuffed out in, in a heartbeat. And uh, be ready today. Yep.
2: All right. Well, be safe on your trip to Nebraska. I think you're going to be doing some filming out there uh, with Steve Shields and trying to get some uh, new video content out. We're looking forward to that. And uh, stay tuned for um, um, our next episode on Super Bowl
1: weekend. So that's all I got. Thanks for listening, everybody. God bless. Have a great week.
0: Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Asio Camo, Bia Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.